Okay, we resume our uh, study in uh, Romans 13. I think in this section we'll probably finish the uh, submission to the government this evening and we'll move on next week dealing with the uh, law of love. And, uh, you know, through Romans in chapter 12 we've seen where we are to give ourselves up to, first of all, God. And then we are to give ourselves up to the rest of the people in the church as far as uh, using our spiritual gifts. And then even giving up ourselves uh, as far as loving uh, the enemies, people who uh, maybe would not like us. And then in chapter 13, he tells uh, the church how to respond and um, how to react to the government. And in all situations. And uh, in all situations, there is the issue of subjection that the church is to do. Um, said we were going to kind of slightly get into civil disobedience. Last week we were going to end with that, and we didn't uh, quite get there. We ran out of time. But the question would be, well, what about it? And uh, there's really a couple of questions we could ask. Well, what's the biblical evidence for that? Since it says here that we're to be subject, that's all souls to be subject to the governing authorities. And it looks like it is always do that. But um, we, we would ask, what's the biblical evidence? And then uh, if it is right, then what is it supposed to look like? So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, and then we'll go into our... Uh, your, sheets that you have there on uh, verse 6 and 7. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, this evening. Thank you for, again, an opportunity to uh, just uh, be able to share your word. Thank you for the inspiration of your spirit uh, upon the, the, the scripture here. And as we are led by your spirit, that we would uh, learn better how to uh, live in this world that you have uh, put us into. And uh, you have made us yours, and you show us more and more how we are to uh, respond to all kinds of issues. And we uh, thank you for your truth as we uh, look to that tonight. Uh, may it honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one question is, what about the biblical evidence then, since we've seen the evidence scripturally here that we are to be subject and we are to submit to the government? Um, does God ever approve of his people to n not submit to authority that he has put in place? Because he's the one that has brought forth the government. And, we, and, and it's good to know that. You know, that really God is the one that ordained government. It is uh, a good thing. Um, although we see in, in Scripture sometimes, and it's uh, not usually the case, but sometimes where men have to obey God rather than uh, men, than other men, uh, governing authorities. And we've kind of talked about that off and on throughout the few weeks we've been on this. And of course you remember in Acts 5, uh, 27 through 29, uh, you have the early church there, and um, they are giving the gospel out. And then the ones who are giving the gospel out, the apostles here, are arrested. 
It says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And then, of course, they give the gospel right there. They talk about uh, Christ being murdered, put on a tree, and then he says that um, there's repentance to be given to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So they got the gospel in right there even when they were being arrested. Um, If the law commands what God forbids, or it forbids what God commands, then the law has to be broken. So... What's important here, I think, is is the conscience that we uh, touched on last week. It's but also for conscience' sake. If our conscience is ruled by the Word of God, and that is where we want to make the standard, and and it always has to be that way. But if we fill our mind with the Word of God, then our conscience then is going to be a, a better model to follow than if we didn't have it filled with that. Of course, we always have to turn back here, and you can think of uh, the book of Daniel, and we might have turned to this passage at one time earlier. In Daniel 3, verse uh, 9, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they weren't um, bowing down and worshiping the image. Uh, pick it up in verse 15. Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor we worship the gold image which you have set up. So they're not about to worship uh, any idols, any other kind of gods. They only worship their God. And they, so they already have it in mind that that's the way it's going to be. And of course, earlier in Daniel chapter 1, you have the issue of the food. And of course, Daniel used uh, the right way of approaching them and then showing that uh, they did not want to eat the king's food. They want to continue to eat the food that was proper for them. And they uh, worked that one right. Well, in this case, um, we know these guys here are saved in this real fiery trial that they go through. Um, in Daniel 6, again, you have an issue with uh, Daniel he's dealing with prayer, and he's not to be praying to uh, the one God as far as the Babylonians are concerned. In verse 6, it says, So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius lived forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, 
that's all the government there, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Now, it's interesting. What does Daniel do? goes home immediately, goes to the place that he, what he always does, and he has the windows open, just like he would ordinarily do. But he could have closed them where nobody would ever see it. But that's not the case here. He uh, is going to do what he has always done, showing that he believes in the one true God. Then it says in verse 11, Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying. Can you imagine that? They found him praying, which he did so often, making supplication before his God. And they went before the king, spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, Then Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command. They brought Daniel, cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. That's amazing, isn't it? He, he loved Daniel so well. And he knew that Daniel had a special God. It's interesting that he would make this prophecy here. But uh, whatever he's saying was correct. A stone was brought, laid on the mouth of Den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. We know Daniel was saved from the lions. Um, so you get Daniel 1, Daniel 3, Daniel 6. They continue to worship the one true God. They do not discontinue what they have done to change over into a, a pagan religion. Uh, book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Way back there. There is um, suffering going on in Egypt. That's the Israelites who are suffering. They're in bondage. They get in heavy bondage. And then in verse 15, we see the then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shipra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When... You do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools. If it's a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. There's the key. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. 
So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're lively, and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall be cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Um, there again, we see a disobedience of the midwives, and then we know uh, about Moses' um, parents and how that all came out to be. So you see some occasions in Exodus and Daniel. How about Esther? Remember the book of Esther. We can find it, right? I'm not turning too quick here tonight. It's 686. It depends on where you're at. Now, if you're on the book of Esther, the first page, it is 680. Yeah. That's what I have. Well, 681. My introduction. Well, that's Nehemiah there. Right there. <laughs> it's chapter uh, chapter 3. Verse 13, I assume you guys know the story of Haman and the Israelites and they were taken uh, uh, really as to the Medo-Persian Empire, right? Did I get that right? Uh, anyway, was it? Yeah. And Esther actually becomes a queen. Now, Esther is Jewish and... They, they're in this empire, but there's a guy by the name of Haman who is underneath the king, and Haman has a lot of power, and he has a conspiracy that goes against the Jews. And just like in Daniel, they try to make up these laws so they can make it um, a hardship for the Jews. In this case, he wants to kill the Jews. And so he gets this conspiracy up where there is no choice for the king but to uh, have to kill him because if the, once the law has been set out, it cannot be changed, even by the king. So in uh, chapter 3, verse 13, we see that... Um, let's pick it up in 12. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. Haman, Haman doesn't like these people. To the king's satraps, to the governors, these are governing authorities now, right? Who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in the language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. That means it's a done deal. This has to be done. The letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So this was serious. They were trying to destroy the whole Jewish race. Well, that can't happen because the Messiah has to come through these people. God 
in his providence, uses Esther and her uncle, Mordecai? Uncle, right? Did I get that right? Okay. God uses these two people. Even though you don't see the name God in all the book of Esther, He's in there all throughout. And He's a God that's provided all this situation. He provided the right person at the right time to deliver a whole nation. And that has to happen because God is going to bring Jesus the Messiah through them. And so, no conspiracy by man, no matter how powerful he is, and that was the great empire at the time. You first had the... Uh, you can think of the uh, uh, Babylonians, then the Medes and the Persians, and that was at the time that uh, Esther uh, was living. Then you have the Greek Empire, then you have the Roman Empire. That was what was in control in those few hundred years there. Turn to chapter 4, verse 11. What, what happens out of this? Well, Esther is going to try to help since she is considered to be uh, maybe having uh, maybe some influence on the king, but maybe not. Because if she goes to the throne, usually people that would do that without being asked to be brought up there would be killed. And even in the position that she is, she was a beautiful lady. And she's considered to be um, almost like uh, one of the king's what? Uh, in the harem? What are they? Haramites? Oh, never heard of that before. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 11. Pick it up 10. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called he has but one law. What's the law? Put all to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. So if he puts out that scepter, then you'll live. Everybody else is going to die if he doesn't do that, though. They would all die if he doesn't put out that scepter. So what's her chances here? Probably not very good at all. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. I've not been called. If I've not been called, I better not go there. You would be thinking. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Don't be thinking that. Just, just like anybody else. This is, this is what would happen to you. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Now that's interesting. Mordecai knows that God is going to deliver them. He says, if it's not through you, it'll be from some other way. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for what? Such a time as this. Perfect timing. God, God's sovereign all through this. He's God of providence. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Well, Esther has this banquet and 
Haman has this plot against Mordecai. And the king honors Mordecai through all that. And uh, then we see that Haman is the one who winds up being hanged instead of Mordecai. And God, again, has his plan come through perfectly. So, a few Old Testament passages that um, I, I think are clear, that they did exactly what was right. And they were in God's will. Sometimes it can be that there are things that are not clearly commanded or it's really not black and white. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to see. that. What are the guidelines then? What do, you, what do we do? We know that abortion is wrong. Um, can we physically take over and keep that from happening? What, what can we do? We know that we're to make it known that we're against it. We should explain our position. I think Christians have. We've argued our case. We should go about it not in the world's way. You know, our weapons are not against what? Flesh and blood. And I don't think that sit-ins or pressure tactics are going to work. They've tried that. People have. But we should always be ready to explain that people are made in the image of God and they're valuable to God. And even an embryo was made by God and viable. And what they're doing is that they're taking an unborn child and they're disfranchising it from this world. And, of course, you could take the, the instance of different colors and different races and such. And, and at one time, this country... Uh, had a situation where a lot of people looked at um, black people and saw them as being less than human. They were not human. They were animals, and they could treat them any way they wanted to. Or Jews were a threat to society uh, in Germany or in, or in other, many other places. You know, you can go on and on and see the different races and different ethnic uh, things that people have had. So it's like, okay... We've had this kind of thing where uh, people have been killed just for no reason that is ungodly. So I think part of the question would be, well, how grievous of the action is it? How, how much is sanctioned by the law that's totally grievous? How atrocious is it? Is it, is it a traffic um, pattern, a traffic problem with a traffic light. How, how big is that? Are, are we revolt against the government on those things? We can make our, our letters out and send those and do that in the right way of, of being a citizen. But um, is the law sanctioning killing, though? Is it a, something of huge importance? That's where somebody has to realize, okay, there's something here that is uh, is major. And then another thing would be the extent of the action. is even though it could be one or two people. That's bad. But let's say, are there a few people affected or are there millions affected? You know, Whatever an issue might be. Is it putting a whole group of people into bondage or is it, uh, is it, is it killing them? You know, that it's because of their ethnic origin or whatever. How about um, the potential of the effectiveness of truth? Let's say something it, it needs to be challenged, but the truth that we get across, how much is it really going to make an effect? Um, and then I think another one is the Spirit of God. How much is He moving over the people of God at the right time to do that? 
we can take in all those other factors, but still, is, is the Spirit of God moving at that very point? And are there many people that are uh, being involved by Him and, and desiring to do that? Um, a, lot of, a lot of questions, I, I guess, need to be asked in that, but um, sometimes it gets to a point where there's such an overwhelming sense that the, the state of affairs in a nation can't simply continue to be going on. And, of course, you saw that in the book of Esther here, or even Daniel, whether it be praying or uh, keeping from bowing down to idols. Those things are uh, important. We must obey God rather than men. Those are, those are clear. Some other times they're not so clear, and then we say, well, how much effect is this making to other people, and what's it doing there? It's not always easy, is it? Guidelines are hard. Uh, we know we we have truth, and we should get the opportunity when we have it to at least voice it, whether it be to individuals or uh, we can write or uh, get opportunities to to share what it is. Let's say if it's right, we know it's right, and the movement of the Spirit of God is there. W- what should it look like? Should it be um, some kind of a disobedience that would be belligerent? That'd be uh, where they're screaming and rock throwing and violent demonstrations. So should a Christian ever be involved in that? Well, we can't do that either, can we? I think it would probably kind of look like the way an individual is to act whenever another individual has offended them. Like in Matthew 5, still yet one can be disobedient to authorities, but our, the, the principle even in behind that would be like where um is it verse forty well thirty eight you've heard that it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now this is an individual retaliation. It says don't retaliate. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is radical. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The uh, the high standard. The extremely high standard. But that's that's being like Christ. So in a sense, if... If it was against the government and it was because it is dealing with obeying God, then still the one's attitude has to be, okay, they want to be our enemies. We still have to show our love here, even though we still have to serve God, worship Him, and do what we know is right in this sense. So that's about the best way that it can possibly look, uh, even though it... uh, Humanly, it could be an impossible situation. Christians have lost their lives for saying that uh, Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. But uh, they did what they knew what was right. Most often the persecutions were 
because of that sense. They took a stand upon who God was and they were not going to change. That was, in a sense, civil disobedience. But it was one of the few ways, few times that one could do that. Does that make sense? Okay. We'll move on to uh, put your sheets there. We'll look at number six and seven. It's a it's a topic that uh, everybody just loves to talk about. You know, can you imagine? Hey, let's study. Let's study about paying taxes. Let's let's get into doing that. But you know what? It's a good thing. <laughs> Because God has ordained that. It's not a thing that I normally would want to um, just turn to and just do my own study with. And I guess that's the beauty of expository um, teaching. And when you go through passages of the, of the Bible, you can't skip them. And I, I could be real tempted with that. <laughs> to me, taxes sound real boring, but they're not. Because God set it up that way to, to be that way. He gives us a lot of information about it. But uh, to me, humanly, at one time, it would have had no interest. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. i gotta, I got to do it because it's a, it's a law. But it's, it's actually submitting to God. And it's, a, it's obeying Him. It honors God when, when we pay taxes. That's an amazing thing. God was real gracious to me this weekend. <laughs> I uh, drove right down the middle of Taos, Taos, Missouri, and I, I just forgot. Yeah, I don't ever go through that way. I go through another way, and so I, I just kind of forgot. And and boy, you know, I was wrong. I was, I went over the speed limit. Went 30. Yeah, it's thirty. I was going like forty-one, forty-two, something like that. Forty-three. Okay. And there's a policeman there, you know. And I go, ah, I look down there, and I, I'm caught. You know, I'm done, you know, and, and uh, sure enough, you know, he pulled right there. I mean, I hadn't been pulled over in a long time. Oh, no. <laughs> I did it. I knew exactly. He's going to get me. He's going to get me. Here we go. And he was real nice. You know, I, I gave him my license, and, and he took it. And, yeah, uh, there, was, there wasn't any excuse I could give him. You know, I was caught. And, you know, I thought about this passage as it happened. And I go, oh, boy, you know. Here we go, uh, and and he came back and he said, well, uh, you know, we're not. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you a ticket this time, but uh, can you slow it down? <laughs> that was pretty good. That was like uh, 13 miles over the speed limit. I'm going, boy, that was merciful. That was mercy, because he really could have. He could have stuck it to me there and had every right. He, you know, and, and I'm glad he didn't, but sure could have. <laughs> It's a minivan with with a handicap license. <laughs> High school kids and they look at they see minivans. Oh, those are old people driving that. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, you were being profiled. I could have been <laughs> in the, in a favorable way. <laughs> Anyway, I, you know, that was, I, I immediately thought, boy, that's what mercy is. Because I really deserved to be stuck, you know, with a ticket. I really did. And he, and he certainly well could have done it. And I couldn't have said a thing. Um, so anyway, I had to confess that. Sorry about that. But you guys are, are uh, looking at me and I'm a lawbreaker. I, I broke the law. Um, 
hope he doesn't do everybody that way, but uh, at, at, at any way, um, then we would have no authority whenever they are, that would be watching over the streets, right? And when you have maniacs like me driving down the middle of Taos like that, I don't know, should be arrested or something. Huh? <laughs> Carolyn just smiled at me and shook her head. Okay. Now, how can I continue on with Romans 13 when you know what I've done already? I wasn't even going to tell you that. Okay. Pay taxes. We've got to pay taxes. We've got to support the government. We are to support them because it's expensive. Government is very expensive. Okay. Huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, they don't take it all. Well, we benefit by it. We really do in a lot of ways. And even if we had a bad government that was very evil and very wicked, we would still benefit by it. I know you're wondering what. But, you know, there's no exception for uh, a Christian actually paying all the taxes that he's assessed. There's there's no way out of it. Paul wrote this. There was a backdrop to all of this when when he wrote Romans. The Roman government was despotic. It was pagan. It was merciless sometimes. Um, the Caesars declared themselves to be God. Many of them did. They demanded worship from the people. Just like going back to the time of Daniel. Wasn't anything different. It later became a, a welfare state. Yeah, they had a welfare state there. Um, where few people worked. And many of them depended upon the government for their living. Part of the Roman taxes were used to support pagan temples and other religious institutions that they had all throughout the Roman Empire. And you knew that you paid your taxes and you knew some of that money went to places that they built to worship a god that wasn't real. A pagan god. Now that would kind of get at you. You know, humanly speaking. And I'm sure... Paul being Paul, before he was a Christian, being a rabbi and a Pharisee of Pharisee, and that with that Jewishness that he had, and uh, I'm sure there were many times that he probably thought, I hate this. And I'm sure he probably might have thought of how to get out of this. But when he became a Christian he saw that he couldn't refuse to pay taxes even though there were ungodly things going on. And he knew that Christians were to be model citizens and they were really to obey God in this. This is where a lot of these things that we are demanded to do goes beyond just nature. Yeah, people can pay taxes, but they can do it just gritting their teeth, you know. And I'm sure that none of us really like to really enjoy going to pay our taxes. <laughs> Everybody's really quiet tonight. <laughs> I'm not apologizing for God's word. It's just it's um, it's kind of different, you know. And that's why I say the natural man just does not like taxes. Yeah, 
party next time we pay. Yeah, really. Yeah. Rejoice for the fact that we had money to pay, all right? Um, kind of interesting, though. Go back and look in the Old Testament. Let's look at a little bit of history. Where did taxes first become known, at least in the Bible, as far as uh, God's people being concerned? Genesis 41. We'll look there just for a moment. Genesis 41.3. Had a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph is an Israelite. He winds up being taken into captivity down into Egypt. And then he spends something like 13 years in jail. And then because he's able to figure out dreams because of God's inspiration, he is put in a position right underneath the king. And he starts making decisions for not only that nation, but a lot of the nations that are involved in a famine. In Genesis 41:35 says this, And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. It's not famine time yet, but Joseph, being very wise and a man of God, realizes that we could have a famine. Famines happen. We need to be prepared. If they wouldn't have had him, they would not have been prepared. And um, so he does this. They get the food from the people. They take it from them. People, you know, they, they collect it, put it all together, and they keep it there for whenever the hard time was would would come. That is a that's a tax there uh, on the people. I'm sure it was pretty taxing when they come in and take your some of your food. But it's it's for the the benefit of of all the people. Verse 48, So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up every in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. They had enough food for when this hits. Joseph uh, really took charge there. Quite a, quite a ruler. Go to chapter 47, verse 26. Let's pick it up in 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own. So that's 20%, one-fifth, Pharaoh. That's pretty high. As seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priest only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So there was some taxation, and it was a good thing. 
it was actually used in, in the right way because it, it saved that nation for when the time hit. Now let's go into Israel and let's look at the theocracy. Now theocracy, theo, means God. And um, there you have the, the, the ruling of that. Uh, it's the rule of God or the government that God had set up. The crassy, the democracy, right? Here we have a theocracy when it was first uh, started out. And so he had a system for taxation too. You may not think of it that way, but that is kind of what happened. In Leviticus chapter 27... And all the tithe of the land, tithe, that sound familiar? 10%, all the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. So we have um, a reference here that would be dealing with ultimately the, the priestly tribe uh, as he's setting it up. There's the, the Levites was the tribe of Israel, one of the twelve tribes that was set where they didn't inherit the land. Everybody else, all the other tribes, had land that they had been given by God. The Levites don't get that. Now, they're, of course, they're at the temple in the sense of the way the other people do, but the other people are to take their tithes and bring it in and give it to the, um, the priest in order for them to live, to be able to have their living... Their food. And uh, chapter 18, verse 21. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear sin and die. This is a, this is a holy place. This is a thing that they are to do, make sure you tithe. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said to them among the children of Israel that they shall have no inheritance." They don't get the land, but they get produce from the land and the things that they need to be able to live on. And so that's the way that God established it for them. This, this tax was actually a tithe. It was 10%. So let's, let's put that up on the board here. For the Levites, you have 10%. Then the next one is found in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And there's a place of worship that God is prescribing for them. And of course, when they first went into the land, they didn't have Jerusalem. You know, they didn't have the place where you would think where they would start building the temple. It moved around. 
but wherever that was at, that was to be the holy place, and that's kind of represented the place where they were to worship God, and there were going to be ceremonies. They were going to celebrate that. They were going to have sacrifices. So the tabernacle was the place, again, as they had been out in the wilderness. Now they're in their own um, own land, and they are to, uh, again, provide some sacrifices and tithes. Uh, verse 10, But when you cross over the Jordan, you dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and He gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safely, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make His name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion, no inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. In one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. So he's he's talking about what what they bring there to that for their ceremonies. It's going to be used for sacrifices. There's a there's actually a ten percent uh, or a tithe that's involved. Um, there's another tax. And it's in Deuteronomy 14. And it's dealing with welfare. We're, we're talking about people who are orphans, widows. Strangers, God's going to provide for them. And he says at the, uh, verse 28, at the end of every third year, every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year, store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates, may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So they were actually taxed for the benefit of people who were less fortunate than they were. How often were they taxed for that? Every third year. So it was 10%, but it was every third year. So what would that be? Math majors. Do we have any math majors here? Okay. 3.3%. Now we've gotten up to something like 23.3%, somewhere in that vicinity. There was also going to be a half-shekel tax, and we look at that in Exodus chapter 30, verse 14. Did you ever think of the people having to pay all this money or or what they owned? back into the government at that time, which was really a theocracy, God ruling. Exodus 30, verse 13. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. What? Half a shekel. According to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 gears. You guys know what that is, don't you? Okay, we'll move on. The half shekel should be an offering to the Lord. 
everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. Now, with that, a half shekel really doesn't amount to, um, to a whole lot. But with that, and then there are other uh, laws made whenever you owned land and you had grain, barley, wheat, whatever you grew, then you were to leave a portion of it all the way around your land for people who were not a fortunate enough to have their own food that they could come in and take from that. They could glean from that. And so when you add it all up, it's it's pretty close to about 24% on an average basis a year for... Uh, the people that were under even uh, this theocracy. So God set up a, a tax system, but he knew when kings would come into play that they would do their human instincts and charge the people much more than what needed to be. That's pretty high to me. If you took a straight 24% today, um, I think... We're pretty blessed, and what we have—I know there are some people who are trying to get a tax basis of a straight 10%, straight up 10% up and down. But boy, there's 24%. I know a lot of that's going for temple services and everything. This was a theocracy, so I'm not saying that we should be taxed this way. <laughs> but that—that that is what God set up. It's—it's it's not a, a wrong thing. But the, we knew that the kings would take advantage, and immediately when Israel had kings, that's what happened. And we know that Solomon and his great empire, and we think of the horses that were brought in and everything. Well, the people, people paid for that, and they had a great temple that he built. You know, it was a good thing. Uh, but we can see how a little bit of the history kind of worked out in that. Well, that's Old Testament. So we go to the New Testament. And we go to see what what did Jesus think of taxes. There's a lot in here about taxing, isn't there? Roman Empire is doing it. I think we go to Matthew 17. Is that a one to turn to? Verse 24. Familiar with this. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he'd come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless. He said, Hey, we don't have to do that. Could have said that, but... Nevertheless, lest we offend them, Go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. When you've opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that, give to them for me and you. <laughs> Don't you like that? He could do that. He's the one that started this anyway. He's in control of it. Go to chapter 22. Trying to get uh, uh, Pharisees are trying to trap him. You guys know this conflict that that he has there. Uh, Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. They went to uh, sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, "Teacher, 
We know that you're true and teach the way of God and truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. <laughs> Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. They brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Okay, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled, left him, went their way. Didn't stump him. Gave the perfect answer. Only Christ could. You know, what's on one side of the coin there is Caesar. It might have been Augustus. But anyway, it's it's a Caesar who actually uh, believes himself to be God and has people worship him. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Despite the fact how evil and wicked that he might be, the whole government might be. I think Jesus made it very unambiguous, totally clear. Something that could be understood very easily that paying taxes to a human government was the divine obligation. They are obligated to. We we were to do that. Rome was pagan. Again, it was very despotic. It was unjust. Augustus there's on the coin. <laughs> How sickening that made the the Jews when they saw that. They hated that. What do our taxes do for us today? You start thinking about it. We've got a pretty good deal. Yeah, come on with it. Firemen, keep going. How about just when we pull out out here, out on the street? Pretty amazing. Uh, we we have we have armies, federal agencies, uh, parks. You know, I think a memorial park there. You know, the city I guess funds that. And food inspectors. You know, to make sure that uh, food isn't tainted. Uh, schools and universities and all the highways, and we go on and on and on. I think we can probably complain about our taxes, but without them, the government couldn't function. If you don't have a government that can function, then you're going to have a civilization that's going to be just impossible to live in. We would not be civilized. Our lives would be in jeopardy every day, for we would have no protection. Our property would be in jeopardy every moment, for anybody that uh, wanted to could just take what you have. So, you know, we don't have it that bad when you really think about it. I think we have it quite good. It's amazing what uh, what it can do. It was ordained by God. That's the reason it it exists. Now, the thing about the state is is that it's responsible, and it's responsible ultimately to God whether they know it or not, um, what it does with its powers. You know, taxes are to really to serve the people and and um, so that you can have uh, a place that, that you can live comfortably in. And it's not to enrich the leaders, although that, that happens. I think our forefathers knew about taxation. What, what was the famous cry during uh, around uh, before the Revolutionary War around that time? No taxation. Yes. And I think they knew what they were talking about, didn't they? For they knew what happened over in England 
What was going over in England over there? They had a king. They didn't have a representative form of government representing who, what you want and what the people wanted, but as whatever the king wanted. And uh, they wanted to get away from that. And basically, I think the, the main reason many of them came here was so they could worship God without having to go under the laws of the state church. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But we would sure be at the mercy of a king had that not happened. They knew that well. So, you know, that's uh, pretty interesting that uh, we think about it. Uh, God has blessed, even despite the facts of some things that we really would be totally against. Uh, look in uh, look in your Romans 13. Let's read these 6 and 7. We're about ready to close out here. After he's given the the things that the government is to do, and and really it's all positive things. Here's here's what they uh, they benefit us for. For because of this, you also pay taxes. You know, they they protect us, and uh, they're God's minister and such. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. That's a tough, demanding passage. And Paul wrote this at the time that uh, he was underneath uh, a government that was pretty tough. Now, I find it interesting that the word there, that they're God's ministers, this time it's not diakonos, it's the word... Liturgos. Liturgos. And in a moment, you might find out that that's kind of interesting. This was usually used at that time for a person who was put into a public office and it was at his own expense as he was in this office. And later it referred to all officials that worked in government, like a, like a public servant today would be. He's a servant. He's a minister. Liturgos is the word there. Now, you get the English word liturgy. So how does that work? In the early church, a religious servant, he was called a servant of God. Or in this case here, your your Bible might say uh, minister or servant. We've seen servant before, but this time it's a, it's a little bit different. But it's basically the same. But uh, this minister, this servant of God, would be in a prescribed religious service. Later, it became known as the liturgy, which is the service of worship or an order of worship. It's the whole religious service, the liturgy. You've heard of liturgy? It may sound very Catholic to you, but it really, if you go back to the very early church, that was a good thing. That's this is how it's arranged. That's the it's the order of worship. There's some order in the way that it that it's uh, arrived at. And of course, you know, you look at some of the liturgical churches. They they're called that, you know, and they'll have a prescribed way, and they'll go by the calendar and such. But they have uh, a, a way that is uniform for their whole denomination, for instance, and they all follow that. But um, in some manner or form, most churches have a liturgy. It may be very loose, but they have some kind of order. If you don't have order, then uh, it's not of God. 
how can I worship God if there's no order? But um, I, I like, for instance, like to have readings and, and prayers and music and um, more prayers and more music and then more readings. And that's all in order of worship. And then the Word of God. You know, and that's that's all a part of that. That's a liturgy. It's a it's a, but that was dealing with service, and so therefore that that's why that word liturgos got in there. Uh, served as a public official. So remember, Paul becomes a Christian after he was that Jewish person that probably hated the Roman government. He submits to Christ, and now he gladly submits to the government. Can you imagine the change that came over Paul? And and he wrote this section here, and then I'm sure he thought of what he had heard about Jesus, what he had said about taxes, and hey, whether it be the uh, the best leaders, the worst leaders, here is what is interesting. And I think this gets things into perspective. They're still servants of God. He's going to use them in the way that uh, ultimately will come into good, even though they can be doing very ungodly bad things, God still has ordained this uh, authority, this uh, office, and they're servants of Him. And they represent a divine institution. And it's something that uh, we can praise God for. It's uh, it's a human mission. You know, mankind's going to distort everything that He gets involved with. And, and even in church, mankind can distort that. God has an institution. We certainly have distorted family, haven't we? But still yet, it's divinely ordained by God. And it's those things are still here. And, and they will be. But uh, man is sinful, and so therefore that's why we have all the problems that we do, even with something that God has given us. It always reminds us, have you guys noticed almost every day, it almost seems like there's not something that goes by during the day that reminds you of sin. Yeah. Even when it's something that's good, there's still things in there that, that, that taints it. So it be. What about the early church fathers? What was their attitude on this? Well, I'll tell you what. Most of them said, that Paul, that guy didn't know what he's talking about. We need to rebel. You think they did that? No. <laughs> The early church had a great testimony. How many here have heard of Clement of Rome? Clement of Rome was in the first century. This is a very early church father, and he possibly could have known Paul. In a prayer, he wrote this. This is a prayer that he wrote. I just took a couple of lines on it. While we render obedience to thine almighty and most excellent name, and look at this, and to our earthly rulers and governors, not worship, but obedience, right? Thou, O Lord, has given them the power of sovereignty through thine excellent and unspeakable might that we, knowing the glory and honor which thou hast given them, may submit ourselves to them in nothing resisting thy will. Grant them health, concord, and stability that they may without failure administer the government which thou hast committed to them. What do you think of that? Now, we know what time they're living in. There was persecution going on. How about Justin Martyr? What does uh, martyr mean today? 
one who has suffered persecution and, and been killed for what he believes. Well, Justin Martyr has a last name Martyr, and guess what happened to him? He wrote to the emperor, Antonius Pius. Everywhere, we more readily than all men endeavor to pay those appointed by you the taxes both ordinary and extraordinary as we have been taught by Jesus. Whence to God alone we render worship, but in other things we gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you be found to possess also sound judgment. Wow, that was Justin Martyr. How about Tertullian? Anybody ever heard of him? He wrote, Without ceasing, for all our emperors we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, for security to the empire, for protection to the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest, whatever as man or Caesar and emperor would wish. So Clement, Justin Martyr, and Tertullian are representing what the early church was doing in the first and second centuries. And throughout church history, you'll, you will see that. We, we've seen what Scripture does, and then we see what, uh, what Christians do. I think there is a, a, a point, though, that we should make it known to the world that God is the ultimate authority. He is the sovereign. And no sovereignty comes to any man except that God gives it to them. They're servants of God. And they're actually given permission by Him in, in their rulership and they're held accountable by Him. I think it would be good that a citizen could tell a, um, a an official to say, hey, listen, you're in a privileged position and uh, I'm going to be praying for you and I do want you to know that um, I respect you. At the same time, you're held accountable for this position was given to you by God. I think we should say that to officials. And I don't think that would be disrespect at all. I think it would pay, be giving them respect and honor and knowing. Wouldn't you want to, Wouldn't you, you want somebody to tell you, you know, God has given you that position? Is that kind of what's wrong with society now? That we've, we've lost that, recognizing that there is a position that is held by God has put that there? And, you know, that's where people, uh, if they go after that office, it's because they're looking for other powers instead of they don't recognize where the power does come from. You know what I'm saying? I think we've lost sight of that. And so, you know, like I said, we've had presidents that have made almost fun of being in that position. Like that does, there's nothing special about that position. They've made, you know, kind of made a mockery out of it. Yeah. And stuff like that. So it's like, you know, that, uh, you know the one we have now even that, uh, that he doesn't want to hold, there's a certain position that should be held there for respect for that office. It's not for the man, but it's for the office that's there. And stuff like that, to be reminded to them that that is who it is that's really controlling it all. And for them not just to forget that. Yeah. yeah. There's an accountability that will be there for them. Yeah, knowing that uh, the whole idea is the sovereignty of God. It's all embodied. That's the way a Christian is going to look at it. An unbeliever, of course, they're not going to look at it that way. But we, of all people, probably, uh, like, who was it? Uh, one of the early church fathers said there that we 
can represent the way model citizens are to be. And he says uh, in verse 7, render, therefore, because of that, render uh, to all their due. Um, Apodidomai means to pay back. Hmm, to pay back. Because the government is what allows you to have a job, to, to work for that. And so you pay back what is owed, all the things that they've done for you. So apodidomai is kind of interesting that it would be put there. Render what is due. Pay back what's owed. And that means sporal, uh, uh, spiritual uh, responsibilities, moral responsibilities. Did you know that customs, where it says here customs, to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, customs were given to King Herod. And you remember King Herod. Back in the days of Jesus, uh, a wicked, evil man, and uh, King Herod actually took—they you know, brought the customs to him. A lot of the well, the Jewish people would be paying for him, who they disdained. <laughs> um, so it's dealing with unbegrudgingly, even doing it. This is what you're to do, and just just do what he says. Wow, I like the word fear here. To whom fear? To whom fear? That's a, that's an interesting word. It's we've ran across it many times. You've heard of phobias. The word there is phobos, and and it's a proper uh, respect here, fear uh, the position that they have or what what they do. Honor. Uh, the word there is tameo. That's how Timothy gets his name. So word of honor. And uh, you would see the same passage. I won't turn to it. We've been there quite a few times throughout this whole text. In First Peter 2, 15 and 17, it correlates with this and talks about the same thing, about giving uh, fear and honor. Just to wind this up, there was a 2nd century Christian writer. And this is what he said. And he's talking about what Christians do. They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They go over and beyond it by the way they live. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death they're restored to life. We're talking life eternal. <laughs> they are poor, yet make many rich. You get the gospel and one is brought to Christ. They're now rich, aren't they? They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their dishonor are glorified. So that's the way that the early Christian citizens lived their lives. Quite, uh, quite remarkable, isn't it? In the time that they lived in. So, you know, even though it's written 2,000 years ago, it is very timely for us today, isn't it? It hasn't changed. And you can see how verse 7, when it says, Fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor, is a bridge that goes right on into the next section, which is dealing with love your neighbor. Oh, no one anything. And he talks about fulfilling the law. And he gets into a much higher law. What is it? The law of love, which covers all those laws, right?
loving God. Anyway, thank you guys for sitting through a uh, a taxing kind of lecture. <laughs> We're supposed to be a cheerful taxing.